everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me today, but we are uh, expecting him to be released from the hospital today. Should be back home recuperating, and hopefully we'll be on the show uh, later this week to do some listener questions to give people an update on what's been going on with him. Uh, but it's, it's good news all around, for the most part, is the best way I can explain it. But Daryl, we'll be back. Uh, we're aiming for Friday. Until then, I'm going to be talking to Meg Linehan of The Athletic. Meg's been on the show uh, once or twice in the past, but I'm really excited to have her back because we have not talked about NWSL very much at all this season, and that's something I would like to uh, remedy, rectify, especially as we uh, get closer to the end of the season. Uh, with that in mind, on today's show, we talk about the next manager of the U.S. Women's National Team, who that might be, who the kind of top candidates are, as well as the work that GM Kate Margraff is doing to figure out who it will be. Uh, and then there's also some Olympic roster uh, chat in there, maybe who might be on the outside looking in. Then we move to NWSL. The playoffs are looming, as I said. Meg explains uh, who she thinks will make it and what might happen, as well as other topics like why the Orlando Pride are bad, uh, why the Dash and Sky Blue don't have big name players, and who the next stars, uh, next young stars, I should say, of the league might be. Plus, her dog even chimes in. Her dog has thoughts on, I think, Margraf and I think it was Kristen Hamilton. A couple other players is when the dog gets animated. So you've got all that to look forward to. So I will stop with the introduction and instead say... Joining me now, I've got Meg Lenahan of The Athletic to help me make sense of all things NWSL and U.S. Women's National Team. Meg, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Hey, how are you today? Doing well, doing well. I'm very excited to talk with you because we have been uh, sort of uh, lax, laps, maybe both, in terms of our coverage of women's soccer since the Women's World Cup. We have fallen victim to that old sort of narrative of like, oh, we're going to get really into it and then maybe fading off a little bit and then coming back for the Olympics. So I'm going to try to make that not be the case. Uh, I would like right. to talk women's soccer more regularly, and, and I'm glad to have you around to help me be able to do that because uh, I'm, I, I look at you as like one of the uh, the like knowledge havers when it comes to women's soccer in this country. <laughs> I try. I try very hard to be a knowledge haver, and sometimes it, you know, works better than others. Can you tell that I hadn't quite figured out what I wanted to describe you as when I started that <laughs> sentence? Yeah, not, I'm eloquent. Anyway, um, yeah, so I wanted to start off by talking about the women's national team. Um, they're soon to be without a manager, which I kind of forgot. <laughs> like, like uh, I forgot that she right. announced this, that the farewell like tour is happening, final game in charge mm-hmm. uh, is October 6th. Uh, North Carolina yeah. coach Paul Carr recently ruled himself out of the position. So what's the latest there, and when do you think we might have an announcement? Uh, yeah, so it actually is kind of interesting. So everything, so part of what is coming into play here is we actually have a new general manager on the women's side as well. So Kate Markraff mm-hmm. got installed into this position that's never existed before. And she... Like, we still, I don't know if we actually, like, know 100% of her job duties at Mm. this point. Like, she's got kind of a big task. But I think, obviously, like, step number one for her is replacing Jill Ellis. So, you know, she also has said multiple times, like, I only want to do this once. I'm not about to go through this, like, immediately again after the Olympics. So I think she wants to find the right person. Um, North Carolina Courage head coach Paul Riley did rule himself out. And then you kind of have a a couple other like big contenders. And I think two of them are from NWSL and that's uh, Rain FC head coach Vlatko Andonovsky and Utah Royals FC head coach Laura Harvey are, I think, kind of the two front runners at this point. And Laura Harvey is kind of also consistently the only uh, name of a woman head coach that has come up in conversations. You know, there are a couple outside contenders, especially from the college scene, but um, it, it does kind of seem like at least 
to what we can see visibly, the race has kind of narrowed to those two players or to those two coaches, even if that's not necessarily what the actual situation is right now. Uh, a couple of things there. First off, uh, I think you very subtly pointed out that I called him Paul Carr, not Paul Riley. Thank you for that. My blunder. Uh, yeah. Second of all, yeah, I did want to ask about that because aside from Laura Harvey, as you said, not as many women linked with the position. Do you feel like that mm-hmm. is like just the situation right now is that there are fewer high profile female candidates or do you think it's representative of a larger issue that there aren't more female candidates who are linked with the position? I think it's a little bit of both. And part of it, too, is that I mean, because there are some candidates that could come up from, you know, the college game. Like you look at Penn State head coach Erica Dombach, for instance, right? Like she's been around or um, uh, Becky Burla. Like there are people that exist and that are women who are head coaches and, and could have the pedigree to take over the U.S. national team. Part of it is do you leave a college position that kind of has some security to, to take over for the U.S. national team? That's, you know, a, a question. But I do think that there are systemic issues that are still, you know, like in the system that we don't get enough women coming into not just coaching, but, you know, administrative roles and and things like that. So, um, and part of that too, like Jill Ellis has actually said, like they just uh, instituted a a sponsorship um, named after Jill Ellis to help get more women into higher profile coaching education and things like that. So, you know, it it is on everybody's radar, um, but yeah, right at the moment, really, Laura Harvey is like consistently the female name that we keep seeing linked to this position over and over again. And and she kind of is the only one still at this point. And would she be one that you would be okay with seeing take over the job? Uh, I, I know she is a uh, a gift creator for you or a source of gift creation, but <laughs> I'm not sure if that's enough to get the national team gig. I mean, yeah, making gifts of Laura Harvey is truly, I think, like, I should just need, I need to put that back in my Twitter bio, really. I need to get back to my roots of just waiting for Laura Harvey to pop on screen. And, you know, like, her new thing is just, it's not even new, like, she's been doing it all season, but she just watches the game, like, sitting on a cooler the entire time and, like, yells at the referee. Like, I watched it happen in New Jersey when they came to play Sky Blue FC. She just sat on the cooler the entire game and, like, would wave at the referee when she was annoyed. Like, she's she's just, like, a great personality. Um, and she also, like, she's one of those people that, like, really, truly gets it, right? Like, in terms of NWSL and its role and, and all sorts of stuff. Like, I had a really great interview with her earlier this year that I still think is one of the best interviews I've really ever done. And basically all I did was let her talk for 20 minutes. Um, I think Laura Harvey, like I personally feel okay with Laura Harvey. I do think that right at the moment, if I had to choose between like what we consider the two front runners between her and Blacko and Donofsky, I would probably lean Blacko and Donofsky. And that's partially because, you know, like he's got some of that same NWSL pedigree uh, he's coached a lot of the national team players, though Laura Harvey has as well. Um, one of the things that they both kind of have an advantage for is like they're both sort of like defensively minded coaches, like both teams that they coach right now are defensively strong. But I, I think that Vlaco kind of has this personality type that he goes under the radar a lot. And he's coached a couple of really, really great teams like FC Kansas City was just kind of a powerhouse in the end of yourself for a really long time. Um, but the way that his former players talk about him, like Becky Sauerbrunn, Heather O'Reilly, you name it, they just, I mean, like you can see like the glow come over their face mm-hmm. and it's just, it's kind of crazy. But I, I do think that if I had to choose between the two, I would probably lean Blacko, but I'm not disappointed 
that those are the two front runners by any stretch of the imagination. So we have our front runners. Uh, it's going to be up to Kate Margraf. We uh, assume, again, not entirely sure of the job mm-hmm. description, but I did also want to ask about your opinion of Margraf's appointment. Uh, we like her. Uh, we on the Total Soccer Show like her. We enjoyed mm-hmm. what she did with ESPN. But I can't say I know a lot about how she's like planning to run the national team or what her vision right. is. So I'm wondering what, what your thoughts were on her. Yeah, I mean, like, I so far what I've heard, it is kind of funny because, you know, like, yes, I'm also pretty used to her as sort of an ESPN, you know, analyst for the U.S. national team. And she's always very upfront. I think she's very clear cut in her analysis. Um, I very much enjoyed her work with ESPN. And then it was kind of funny to have that first conference call with U.S. soccer. And she immediately kind of was was within company line right like not a lot was being said nope it was just it was so it was just so funny because it's like yep all right you're in the system got it cool but I do think it's good to have a former player and also someone who has looked at U.S. soccer from that sort of outsider's point of view as well in the media um I, I think that the players all a lot of them hadn't really talked to her at length when I spoke to players about her But I do think that they're kind of like, yeah, she's a player. She gets it. You know, she's been through this program before and not just, you know, from the 99. Like she she is a 99er, but she's kind of not the Mia Hamm, Julie Foddy type. You know, she was the youngest person on that team. So I I think that there is kind of like a nice bridge that Kate Markgraf offers when it comes to the players, when it comes to the Federation. Um, But again, like, yeah, we don't really know. 100% 100% of her job duties. I'm hoping that eventually, like, once she gets, sorry, about my dog, um, once she gets a little more settled, uh, we'll actually start getting some interview time with her. She wasn't made available to the media in Philadelphia when she traveled with the team. So hopefully at some point, uh, they trust her to actually start talking to the media and uh, giving us a, a at least some sort of glimpse about what she's thinking in terms of the development and direction of this team. All right. I appreciate that your dog seems to have passionate opinions on Kate Margraf. That, that, that's good. Uh, no coach lined up. We've already said that. Uh, I'm still assuming that the Olympic roster won't look like too dissimilar from the 2019 World Cup roster. Uh, so I know you can't really like say for sure, given that we still don't have a coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who are the players you think right. maybe could be at risk of missing out on that competition? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one because I, I think, you know, so first of all, we have to drop from 23 players to 18, and then you get your four alternates. And if you look at the 2016 edition, we had this sort of big turnover simply because we had a whole bunch of retirements, and then Sydney LaRue and Amy Rodriguez got pregnant that year. So the, the roster kind of settled itself to some extent, and you were able to get in new players like Crystal Dunn, Mal Pugh, Lindsey Horan into the Olympics. We're not really going to have that same situation in the flip from 2019 to 2020. And a lot of the veterans who, you know, like in other years might have said like, oh, okay, you know, like I got my, my World Cup. I'm good. I'm done. Like I'm going to peace out now. Like Carly Lloyd, Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, like those are sort of the older players where, and I don't think any of them would really call themselves an older player, but like they, they're all especially for Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapinoe, like they've said, like, we're going to go for the Olympics. So Megan Rapinoe is still very much in form, obviously up for FIFA best awards this year. Carly's kind of the one player where, you know, there were a lot of questions going into this world cup about her place on this roster. A lot of debate about her starting versus being on the bench. Like that was a big narrative heading in. And so I think that's really the player that we're going to have to watch, especially with a new head coach coming in 
of how they decide to tackle putting Carly Lloyd on the Olympic roster or not, because it's one thing to put her on a World Cup roster where you have some extra leeway, but with 18 players, I think it's a little bit harder to justify that. Um, and then uh, Alex Morgan, who you mentioned is a more veteran player, she announced this week she'll miss the remainder of the NWSL season due to knee injury. Mm-hmm. That's only three games, I think. So that seemed that seemed very dramatic at first. Yeah. And then I realized only three games, <laughs> slightly less dramatic. Right. But do you think that has any impact on the national team? Or do you think she'll just kind of continue to be in consideration after she deals with the yeah. knee injury? Yeah, I think she's probably fine. Like, she's still, like, relatively young compared to everyone else. But, you know, she has had a very, like, injury-prone career. So I I think that, you know, I had an article come out this morning about this, but the timing benefits her. Right at the moment, she has some time for rest and relaxation. Like, yes, you're going to miss these two upcoming friendlies against Korea. Yes, you're probably going to miss whatever they schedule for November to close out the year. But it gives you enough time to, like, get back into full health ahead of a winter camp and then Olympic qualifying. So I I don't think it's going to like hugely impact or anything. It's just a question of, you know, can she bounce back from it? Can she be at full health when she returns? And do you think we see any new faces added in her absence to kind of take over that central striker role? Or do you think it'll be more so the people we've seen in the last world cup? No, I mean, we have so much depth there, right? Like there's just, there's a ridiculous number of forwards. I think the one nice thing that we, we did see in the last, uh, pair of friendlies is Joe Ellis called up Kristen Hamilton and rewarded her for her great summer so far in NWSL with North Carolina Courage. So, you know, there are people who are kind of ready and waiting for their moment in the spotlight. And, and that's what we always kind of see with winter camp where you get like this huge chunk of players called in. So that way everyone can kind of get a sense of what the pool looks like. And especially with a new head coach coming in, like that's probably where we're going to see that sort of movement happen where you start to get a look at who's, you know, further down the list when it comes to the depth. All right. Well, you mentioned uh, Kristen Hamilton uh, in North Carolina. Let's talk North Carolina. Let's talk NWSL for a moment. Uh, North Carolina coasted to the Shield last year, uh, winning 15 points. That's like PSG, uh, both men's and women's PSG. Or no, excuse me. PSG men's and then uh, Lyon women's Leon. coasting. Yeah. There we go. Uh, they didn't concede in the playoffs, won the final against Portland 3-0. This time around, things are a little bit closer at the top. Um, is that North Carolina underperforming this season, do you think? Or is everyone else just sort of catching up? Well, North Carolina looked like absolute beast last year. And this year, you can actually kind of see some cracks, right? Like, they actually have been susceptible to some other teams this year. And then the past week, they won against Portland Thorns 6 yeah. which you don't really expect. And then they completely demolished Orlando Pride, which you do kind of expect 6-1. So they, my dog is a delight. <laughs> also, also um, not happy about Orlando losing. It sounds so. Uh, yeah, Margraf you know, fan, I, Orlando Pride I fan. Got that. it. I know. I feel that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like North Carolina, I think has kind of hit their stride. And what was interesting is I actually went down there for uh, ICC Women's Tournament, and you know they they kind of had a weird first game and then they faced off against Leon in the second game and this was a game like they deeply wanted to win it and it did not go their way and then i feel like after they they got past that they just like something flipped so i think they wanted the prestige of actually beating leon with all of their us national team players present and that sort of thing and then instead losing to leon kind of like turn that switch back on and was like, Oh no, we've got to like 
demolish people again to prove what we're about. That's really interesting. So, I, oh, wow. Okay. That makes sense. Well, why, yeah. do you, why, like, why, I mean, Leon, obviously the dominant team in Europe, is that just sort mm-hmm. of because there has been that debate around, like, is NWSL better than uh, League on, like, right. Feminine? Yeah, or? no, I think okay. it's really like this league pride thing. I think it's also, you know, last year in the first ever women's ICC tournament, North Carolina beat them one nothing. Heather O'Reilly scored in the eighth minute. And then they did not, like, dominate that game by any stretch of the imagination. So there was this sort of like strange club bragging rights attached to it, league bragging rights, like all that sort of stuff. And then Leon came in and was like, listen, we've got to like reassert ourselves as actually the best club team in the world. And they came out like full, you know, top tier rosters. They were not messing around in North Carolina at all. And, you know, they, they got results um, over those two games, but yeah, I, I do think that it is stuff that like that tournament does actually really matter to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I think the NWSL like as a league has a weird relationship with the ICC, but in terms of like the league informally, like people do actually, to some extent, take it seriously that we want to prove ourselves against top European talent, especially when Leon is, you know, essentially like the France women's national team plus Marathon. Much, much more still to come from Meg Linehan, but first I wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Talisman Caps. TalismanCaps.com offers high-end quality-made caps and gear to help you support and celebrate your football club or your national team. Uh, they have the national team collection where if you go to their website, go to shop, uh, that drop-down menu, find USA Collection, they've got many, many different offerings in there. They've got like uh, World Cup 94-inspired polos, but then they've also got throwback jerseys like, say, the the uh, U.S. Women's 2007 uh, national team, Abby Wambach jersey, that's in there. Uh, they've got caps inspired by uh, historic players. You've got the Trailblazer cap, the Mufasa cap. Uh, you've got the Brandy Chastain-inspired cap. You can imagine what's on that one. Um, so you've got the USA collection, but then obviously you have, uh, as I said, caps for your favorite teams uh, at club level. You could be some MLS ones. They've obviously got Minnesota, since they're a Minnesota-based uh, company. But all the big teams in the Premier League, individual players... Uh, from past and present. Many, many different options, all of them pretty, pretty solid. And I would say so too are their uh, vintage uh, collections uh, with jerseys ranging from anything from like the late 80s to like early 2000s. Uh, like it's a nice like uh, snapshot of how kind of soccer fashion has changed over time. I always enjoy looking at the jerseys and like thinking at the moment how I was like, oh, there's no way we're going to get past this. Like this is going to be the jersey style for forever. And then looking back on, say, 1996 and thinking, yeah, maybe that wasn't the best route to go for jerseys. So I always appreciate that about Talisman. And I appreciate that they're willing to give listeners 10% off. If you go to talismancaps.com and use the code TOTALSOCCER10, that's all one word, all together, all uppercase, uh, you can get 10% off any order of $35 or more. $35 is, of course, the price of one hat. So again, that's uh, TOTALSOCCER10 for 10% off any order of $35 or more over at talismancaps.com. Thank you very much once again to Talisman for sponsoring the show and for continuing to sponsor the Total Soccer Show. We very much appreciate it. Now back to my conversation with Meg Linehan of The Athletic. Do you have an opinion on that debate about, like, which one is stronger, NWSL or uh, Ligon? Yeah, I mean, I think that NWSL still kind of has that claim in terms of top-to-bottom talent. Like, and, and I think that we've seen it this year is that, you know, the Shield race was more unpredictable. We've seen other teams take over the top spot. Chicago has had 
you know, an up and down season, but have become um, finally kind of in this conversation alongside Portland and North Carolina when you when you talk about sort of dominant teams. And we're seeing a tighter race between like Rain FC and Utah Royals. And then Sky Blue had a miserable 2018. And then it looked like they were kind of on that same course for 2019 and have actually gotten some pretty major results, including against the Chicago Red Stars. So we're starting to see the league has kind of like figured itself out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Leon, I think is still kind of, you know, D one it's, it's kind of two top teams still. And then where they kind of get that parity is champions league. And that's the thing that we still can't really compete with in the United States is just kind of the appeal of a champions league type tournament. And that's kind of where ICC has tried to fill in that gap. And it, you know, it works to some extent, especially when you're able to get teams that are outside of like the, the champions league format, which in theory should happen. But um, yeah, it's really like NWSL versus champions league is actually kind of the competition. And that's where I'm not entirely sure who has the edge. I, I genuinely have no idea what the answer to this, to this question is. Is there a team like in North America outside of the, of the NWSL that like, not not as close to it, like North Carolina, but like who would be the the main competitor if there were going to be a friendly between North Carolina and say a team from Canada or Mexico or somewhere else in Concacaf? Ooh, I mean, Liga MX for the women mm-hmm. is really there's nothing really in terms of like infrastructure for Canada women's soccer. You know, Christine Sinclair is in Portland, mm-hmm. um, so actually Houston Dash just announced a friendly that's going to be on I think October fifth against um Tigris from the Liga MX women's league. So uh but they're they're still like they're getting great like attendance numbers and like I, I think that they're doing great work for their visibility and all that kind of stuff, but it's still not like in terms of quality of play for NWSL, I don't think. So there isn't really like a club infrastructure mm-hmm. in the CONCACAF system that could really compete with what Europe has right at the moment. All right. Well, let's stay with the NWSL then. Um, as you said, uh, Courage destroyed Portland 6-0. Um, aside from uh, North Carolina scoring a bunch of goals in that game, like wh- what happened? Because <laughs> I do think of Portland as a very good team. <laughs> Obviously, they did lose in the final last year 3-0, so this is double that. But I'm assuming something either went very right for North Carolina or very wrong for Portland or maybe both. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both just because, I mean, Portland looked gassed, like, for pretty much most of that game. Like, North Carolina really dominated the wings in that game. And just, I mean, when the strategy over and over is just, like, put in across from the right wing and someone will score a goal off of it, like, at some point, you kind of have to figure that out. And then eventually they scored one, I think, off of the left wing instead. So it was... It was definitely, it was just very strange. And like, they, it's not like, it was a midweek game, right? So they had played the Friday before and had lost to Utah Royals FC 1-0 away and then came home for a Wednesday game at Providence Park. So yes, you can say like the midweek might have affected it, but I mean, it just, Portland did not look at a hundred percent by any stretch of the imagination. And then North Carolina, again, is just kind of now in full North Carolina mode. So those two things just, but it, it was just like a whole bunch of early goals too. So once that happens, it's just kind of like, okay, well, I guess 
this game is going to go this way. And sometimes you're able to kind of limit it, but instead it was three goals within the first 24 minutes. And then it just kind of like the game is done at that point. (laughs) So, (laughs) Yeah. I did appreciate the commentators. I think when the fourth one went in, like then they, they said like, okay, now it's over. And it's like, "Ah, I'm pretty sure it's been over for a little while, but sure. sure, (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, that's, and then you had, you know, a couple, you had, the two goals, like 61st, and I think it was like 68th minute, but then you get like that one last goal at the end from Kristen Hamilton. And it's oh, just yeah. kind of like, okay, like, <laughs> yep, the point has been made. We got it. You guys are back. <laughs> this is uh, terrifying tool. Then they beat uh, Orlando Pride, as you said. Uh, they um, The Pride, I, I'm very confused by because they employ big names. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Marta, you've got Alex Morgan, yep. Krieger, Ashlyn Harris. Uh, then uh, like players that I thought looked solid at the World Cup, players like uh, Claire Elmsley and uh, Emily Van Egmond. Yep. Yet they're dead last in the table. And I'm wondering if you have an idea of like why that is the case and maybe how much of it relates to the fact that most of the names I just listed are attackers. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> Orlando Pride are just a very strange beast this year. And, you know, part of it, too, is that the team has some big contracts, right? Like, obviously, the national team players are paid by U.S. soccer, but Marta is a big contract. So, like, the team kind of has this top-heavy feel to it. Um, They also have a new coach this year. So, like, at the end of last year, everybody was kind of like, okay, Orlando Pride isn't working. Maybe the players are checked out. The team um, and Tom Sermani, the former head coach, just sort of like mutually part ways and say like, listen, it's probably going to be best for the team if if we just start fresh. They bring in Mark Skinner from England and he tries to like set up the system for Orlando. And it just, we keep kind of seeing uh, English head coaches come in. Like Matt Beard did this for the Boston Breakers who come in and they, they think like, okay, I'm going to put my system into this league and it's going to like miraculously work. And it is 0 for 2 so far in terms of the sort of like tempo and, and just general tactical approach has not worked in this league. So like there are big Orlando pride questions just in terms of like depth of the roster isn't there, but also like the players that they were starting out the year with in sort of key positions, like especially defensively, like they were relying on, on rookies right off the bat. And yes, that worked for Washington spirit. Um, but like Aaron greening coming in as a, as a rookie, like those types of players, like you can't necessarily expect Marissa Vigiano is another one, like stepping in as a midfielder kind of right off the bat. Like the players aren't necessarily at that level of NWSL from college in April. So um with a head coach who isn't familiar with the league like there's just a lot of things mixing together for this team and they just really have been kind of a a disaster on the field especially defensively this year yeah you mentioned the spirit like relying on rookies and young players and that that's like Mm -hmm. is i was curious if that was still the case so i'm glad that you've clarified that one why why is that because i'm assuming like it relates to uh the like unpopularity of their ownership, but I'm not sure if that is still the case. So I was wondering if you could kind of give insight as to why the spirit kind of operate the way they do. Yeah. I mean, well, the spirit did kind of have that turnover just in the the Bill Lynch era. So like Crystal Dunn left, Allie Krieger left, you know, you do kind of have the turnover that means that the team is relying on, on younger players, on rookies, especially. Um, And Andy Sullivan is kind of like their central player this season. 
Um, the ownership actually has essentially changed hands. Like Bill Lynch is still an owner, but now Steve Baldwin is the majority owner. And they've also done, I think, a lot of work off the field this year to try to improve the spirit just as a, as a destination team. Um, two games at Audi Field this year. They've, they've gotten new sponsorships. Like there is a lot of work being done. And also Steve Baldwin like wrote an open letter um, in an attempt to be more transparent with the fan base at the start of the year. So like we are seeing encouraging signs that the Washington spirit do kind of have this future as an independent team in the league um, in a way that we don't necessarily even see from, I mean, you look at Orlando pride and Houston dash and kind of their attendance numbers this year and kind of what they're, they're putting together off the field. Like Orlando actually has just sunk a lot of money into a big training facility on the women's side. So like, that's a very encouraging sign. Houston just announced this, this friendly in Mexico, like teams are doing things, but like in terms of looking at who's getting world cup bounces and who's not like, we're not seeing it even in two MLS markets, whereas we are seeing it in Washington. Um, that said, the spirit, uh, as you pointed out, they played two games at Audi Field, uh, one against Orlando this past mm-hmm. weekend uh, against the Rain. Uh, they go up 2-1 to one yep. in, what, the 90th minute, I think, end up drawing 2-2. Two, two. How big of, yeah. a, like, of an impact do you think dropping points there will be in terms of the spirit trying to make the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, they definitely need a result against the Rain simply because the Rain are also looking for that fourth playoff mm-hmm. spot. And Washington, you know, does have the advantage of the schedule, just that they have more games to play. But that was going to be a really key result. So, I mean, it's great that they still picked up a point because it does, you know, technically keep them in the mix. But they needed three points. Um, I think Utah also would have really preferred if they picked up a full three points. But they're still five points off of Utah and rain looking for that fourth playoff spot. So they, they did really need to actually like close that one out and get all three points there. Um, and then I, I, I went to the Orlando pride game uh, at, at Audi field. I really enjoyed what I saw from Andy Sullivan, who you mentioned, and then uh, Jordan DiBiase, mm-hmm. I thought uh, looked pretty solid yeah. as well. Uh, I don't know if that was yeah. just a one-off, but it did make me then wonder like, are there, who are like the other, like maybe lesser known names in the league, not just with Washington, but around the league who you think maybe people have not heard as much about, or maybe don't know of as, like, as well as some of the senior national team players that you think maybe we might see on that national team uh, down the road. In terms of like Americans, yeah, or just, either, okay. actually, actually, either so, one. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind knowing like yeah. who the next big up and coming players are for any other national team. Yeah. So, well, what's funny is because when the the question first started, like the first player that my mind went to is Yuki Nagasato, who mm-hmm. is not necessarily an up and coming player, but used to be on Japan's national team, mm-hmm. and I think has been so key to Chicago Red Stars' mm-hmm. success, and especially in terms of setting up Sam Kerr. Sam Kerr, obviously, sort of the future of women's soccer right at the moment. And, like, P.S., see her in the end of his cell probably while he still can because at some point someone is going to figure out, like, she needs a lot more money than what she's getting here. And she is going to actually probably follow that money. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Yuki Nagasaki, like, again, had another huge game uh, this past uh, matchup against Cardo FC um, is really key to that team. But in terms of, like, players that we're seeing coming up, like obviously Kristen Hamilton got that call up, even though she is slightly older, like she was a above age call up for the U 23s, but you know, we're kind of looking at the reemergence of Mitch purse this season as well, in terms of someone who could actually, you know, maybe get another crack at the senior national team. 
Um, Amani Dorsey is still kind of circling around uh, the national team picture, thanks to Sky Blue FC, um, former NWSL Rookie of the Year. And then I think the other big name that people are going to want to keep an eye out for is Casey Murphy, who's the goalkeeper now for Rain FC, who, who Rain FC has basically lost every single goalkeeper they had at the start of the year to injury. And Casey Murphy um, was signed as essentially like a replacement mid-year and um, arguably could be, you know, in the mix for the goalkeeper position for the senior national team, like within the next, cycle for sure and um i'm I'm frantically trying to pull up the roster right now aubrey bledsoe there it is uh the goalkeeper yeah, for the washington yeah. spirit uh i was also impressed right. by her she had a goal line save against orlando yeah do you expect her to be in that uh conversation for future goalkeepers i mean i would be like she hasn't really ever gotten a look which is bizarre when you actually look at her form and you know like when you look at the the just overall numbers from NWSL, it's pretty much always Aubrey Bledsoe and Kaylin Sheridan who are leading the way in terms of like saves and just like consistently kind of in the mix for save of the week and things like that. Um, but Aubrey Bledsoe really has almost like been passed by, it seems like, by the national team. And, you know, this, this is getting into like bigger picture national team stuff. But, um, you know, one of the big complaints that I think a lot of us had about the whole solo era is that you have this one dominant goalkeeper that obviously is like essentially the best goalkeeper in the world, but you're not setting up the successor. And so now we're going to start getting into that same question mark about Alyssa Mayer and in terms of like, okay, will she be playing in the 2023 world cup? And if not, who are you going to start setting up for success in the goalkeeping position? If Alyssa Mayer is not going to be in the picture for 2023, and so the question is, would Aubrey Bledsoe be a person that you call in? Do you kind of essentially skip a generation with Ashlyn Harris and move on to French from Portland Thorns? Or do you also start looking at, at players like Casey Murphy, who's very young and has youth national team experience as well, and just say like, okay, we've got to like essentially build our next goalkeeper for an entire generation now while we have this sort of turnover from the head coach position, all sorts of things. All right, playing so we, into that, so that that, make, that yep. makes sense to me. Uh, so, like we've talked about some of the bigger teams because they tend to have like the bigger name players. Uh, looking at the rosters of Sky Blue and Houston, it seems like they have fewer like quote unquote name players, at least to me. Yep. Uh, do Do you feel yep. like there's any particular reason for that being the case? Yeah. So there was a lot of talk kind of early on in the year, and I, it's even like beyond the season. Um, but for Sky Blue FC they obviously went through like a huge off the field kind of turnover. Uh, former GM Tony Novo was fired by the club. They've installed Lisey Hugh first as interim GM and now finally as like actual GM. Um, but they, they lost draft picks to playing overseas because the conditions around sky blue have been so bad. Um, because they just moved their, their final game of the year to Red Bull arena We've probably gotten our last game ever at Yersac Field, which is at Rutgers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that a lot of the like conditions off the field, like Sky Blue FC just had kind of this rep of being like a train wreck off the field. Like, why would you want to go play there when <laughs> there's no like restrooms at the training facility or things like that, right? Yeah. Like, it's just not an appealing situation to go play in. But I think that Elise LaHue, as as many of us kind of expected when she got pushed into this new role, 
has done so much work and I think has really turned the team around. So I think that they're the worst of their issues is behind them for sure. Houston, on the other hand, like they're, they're kind of going through the same thing. I think they also unfortunately have um, just the weather of Houston probably does not appeal to a lot of people. Just like I think Orlando kind of has that same situation. Um, But it, it is kind of like this thing of you're trapped in this, like not the worst market ever, not the best market ever. There are questions kind of about how much effort is being putting it like being put in to market the team. And um, just, I I think that players can look at teams and kind of immediately clock on how much investment and respect it's put in from a front office. And I think Houston is kind of one of those teams where we see that it's not, you know, like no, not everyone can be a Portland, right. Mm -hmm. But the question is how much are you striving for? And I I think we see the same thing in MLS too, right? Like Grant Wall's ambition (laughs) ranking. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where we see Houston, especially struggling is that the ambition is not necessarily where players would would like it to be. And that's why, you know, we've seen some players say like, Oh, I'm going to pass on going to Houston. No, thanks. I want to go to a market where I know like I'm going to get attention and I'm going to get marketed the right way. And it's going to be good for my career. And that's, that's kind of where we've seen that disconnect with Houston. So I uh, I was at the draft in Chicago and yeah, I was, it it became abundantly clear that people did not want to play for sky blue uh, at that draft. Do Mm -hmm. you think this time around, will that still be the case? Or do you think they've gotten past some of that? Do you expect people to be more okay with sky blue? And I guess the same question for Houston as well. Yeah, I think, you know, and now I think the question is, I think it's going to be a lot more like results based, right? So Houston is still in kind of an okay position. Like they're probably, they really don't have a chance of making the playoffs, but like the question for Houston is like, because they've never really actually been in a position to make a serious run for like a a home playoff or something like that. Like that's where people are going to be looking at Houston Um, for sky blue. I think that probably we're not going to see the same situation that we saw in Chicago by any stretch of the imagination. And part of that, I think really was tied to Tony Novo and his approach. Um, I think that Elise with has been around for a while and kind of knows how to approach draft picks. They've got to figure out their, their coaching situation. I think that's going to be a key to, to making sure that sky blue actually can be a player at the draft and saying like, listen, our record in 2018 was terrible. Our record in 2019 was better. We got some good wins and there is a promise here. And if you come play for us, like you can help be the difference and that, that gets us into playoff positioning for 2020. Um, Orlando is going to be in that same sort of situation. I think now where the results aren't good. And yes, like you might be able to play with Alice Morgan and Marta and things like that. Um, and there's a nice stadium and, and there's going to be a training facility, but you actually look at the record and you look at the coaching situation. I think that's where people are going to have some questions there, but yeah, I, I don't think that we're going to actually have some of the like terrible storylines that came out of this last draft. Yeah. I mean, where, like, like players were like outright being like, I'm not going to schedule. Yep. I mean, like, cause that was when Tina Davidson, like she, that was when she did her like sort of hostage video, right? Yeah, <laughs> and that, and so that like started that set the tone, and then yeah, I, I remember people like 
being called up. I can't remember their names. I apologize. But like, I remember them just looking like, I think it was oh, Julia good. Ashley. Yes, was it was. Thank yeah. you. Cause I keep wanting to call her, uh, like yeah. Judy Ashley for some reason. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. That was, I'm glad we'll, I'm glad we'll be past that. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, I should, uh, note that we kind of pointed out a couple times, uh, we're near the end of the season. Uh, for people who don't know, uh, can you explain sort of the format for how NWSL playoffs work and maybe how you think it all might play out? Yeah, so the the playoffs are pretty simple. It's really just top four teams qualify for the playoffs. So five teams obviously miss out. And then uh, the top two teams host the semifinals. So it's 1v4, 2v3. And right at the moment, um, let me actually like pull up the standings since it has changed in some format um, every single (laughs) week. But um, you know, North Carolina is on a four game winning streak now and is back in the number one spot. They're two points ahead of Chicago Red Stars, um, who are on a three game winning streak and then Portland Thorns. And right at the moment, uh, Utah Royals and Rain FC are actually tied on points, but Utah Royals has the, um, head to head tiebreaker over them. So it's kind of the number four spot that I think we're looking at the most. Washington has an outside chance at it, but I think North Carolina is pretty much a lock to host a home playoff game at this point. The question is if Portland can manage to like get back and push past Chicago to actually host the playoff game. But um, yeah, I mean, right at the moment, it's number four. Reign FC has been basically ravaged by injuries this year. They did just get Megan Rapinoe back on onto the field, which is like a great boost for them. Um, Right at the moment, I think if I had to guess who was going to make the playoffs, I would maybe lean Utah, but that is really, like, I think it really is a 50-50 battle, and their their two respective schedules, I think, could play a part. Like, Reign FC will actually host Portland Thorns FC in, like, one last Cascadia match that's going to be on ESPN2. That game has, like, a huge playoff implication, obviously. Um and then we have the NWSL championship at the end of the year, which is actually going to be in North Carolina this year. They set um, a location in advance every year. Oh. Um, so that's October 27th. That wasn't just in anticipation of uh, North Carolina making it to the final no. again? <laughs> no, although, you know, there is kind of uh, essentially people suspect that it was put in North Carolina after, I don't know if you remember this last year, but, during the playoffs last year, there was a hurricane that was about to hit North Carolina and their home playoff game got moved to Portland. Oh yeah. Um, so it was probably a little bit of a makeup okay. in terms of, uh, yeah, them getting the championship. This Are you year. Saying- but I mean, they've also like, they've hosted ICC, they, they host college cup. So like they've, they've kind of been through it before. You're saying Portland wasn't a home game for them I mean, that game was nuts. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the, the semifinal actually was pretty respectful beyond any time Jaylene Hinkle touched the ball, <laughs> which is a, a Portland special. <laughs> Uh, and final question, uh, like relates to like the the medium future, I'd say. Um, I wanted to ask what the latest was in terms of expansion. It sounds like there might be some things happening mm-hmm. in Louisville, which was surprising to me. I like Louisville. I'm excited for them to get a team, but it was surprising to me because I kind of assumed that LA was next. It felt like it was moving in that direction. Right. Now, maybe not the case. Yeah, I mean, so we're still waiting to like really hear anything concrete. Every every person that I talked to, kind of on every side of it was really hoping that 
if there was expansion this year, that they'd be able to kind of announce it mid-season rather than waiting for the end of the year as every other sort of either relocation or expansion effort has always happened kind of in the off season. Mm -hmm. So we're waiting to see part of what's complicating this is that the relationship between us soccer and the NWSL is going to change. Um, And I think those contracts in terms of, you know, us soccer kind of wants to get out of the business of helping to run the league in terms of the support that it provides. So that's going to affect expansion. Um, but yeah, Louisville is, is in the mix. And part of that is the new stadium. Um, they would like to fill some dates. Uh, but there's also a connection between NWSL president, Amanda Duffy, who used to run the uh, USL team there. Right. Um, so it is kind of, you know, a natural link in terms of just having uh, <laughs> previous relationships. Um, LA FC, I think is still in the mix, but, from what I hear, it's always kind of this, like, yeah, we definitely want in, but we're not quite ready for it. And NWSL wants teams that are ready for 2020. And it just really doesn't sound like LAFC wants to join, like, within the next year. Uh, and then would you expect Atlanta to be further in that conversation down the road? Yeah, I think Atlanta is going to be in the mix. I also think like Minnesota will probably be in the mix. Cincinnati has definitely started sniffing around as well. Like there are markets from MLS point of view where it obviously does make sense. Um, Atlanta has had women's professional soccer before. Um, but I think obviously it's a, a completely different beast compared to the beat with what <laughs> Atlanta United is doing right now. Um, yeah. I do think that it probably would, you know, it's a much better internal structure to build from from Atlanta United based on what WPS had built. So, you know, I, I do think that Atlanta's probably going to become interested, but I think that right now finding markets where NWSL can step in and immediately become a, a big player, like that's part of why Portland works so well is that there's not a lot of competition for the Thorns. And that there obviously was like an existing soccer fan base. So I do kind of actually like the league looking at smaller markets and finding ones that would work for them. Like technically if an NWSL team uh, moved to Louisville, they would be the only professional team in like division one in that town, which immediately sort of provides a boost. And if you have, you know, Alex Morgan swinging through or, you know, like all these other world cup players, like there is going to be some appeal there right off the bat, even with casual people. Yeah, I, I have long made the argument that, that uh, Louisville would be a great city for Major League Soccer, so I would very happily have it be an NWSL t- uh, city instead. Uh, but Meg, uh, you've, yeah. you've given us like, so much time. I really appreciate it. I know you're uh, in the middle of a fairly comprehensive article. Can you let uh, people know what you're working on? Yeah, I'm just really trying to um, write an article that really sums up everything we've got so far when it comes to the U.S. Women's National Team lawsuit against the Federation, the collective bargaining agreement stuff you know, public opinion stuff, like really just trying to put everything in one place so that way we have it as a resource and a timeline. So that way when something happens and we have to say like, okay, let's put it in the context of this larger fight against the Federation for equal pay and also, you know, investment and marketing and all of this other stuff, we actually have a place to say, okay, this is where it fits into this this bigger picture. That would be lovely. And I look forward to reading that. Uh, but for now, I'll let you get back to work and maybe taking the dog out, it sounds like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is, is it a bo- uh, boy or a girl? It's a girl. It's the wit. Yeah, she, she's sounds like she's ready to I've go. I've got her in my arms. <laughs> I, this is uh, like 
for what it's worth, this is why I record in our studio even when it's just me as opposed to at home because <laughs> almost every time our mail carrier comes through and our dogs, one, one <laughs> yeah. tiny, one large, go nuts during recording. And that's yeah. never great for the audio. So I feel your pain yeah, on that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it used to be like Jill Ellis used to do conference calls from home and you could always hear her dog in the back. She's just like, sorry, guys. <laughs> She's so cool. She's so chill. We need another national team manager that has that much chill. But, Meg, thank you very much one more time. Uh, We very much appreciate you taking the time. All right. Thank you so much for having me.